1 Kings in the chapter 11 this evening, 1 Kings in the chapter 11. One Kings, the chapter eleven, beginning our reading at the verse one. The word of God says, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in to them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build in high place for Shemosh the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And in our reading there at the verse 8. Now as we inch ever closer to the end of our study in the covenants of the Bible, we move away from the Davidic covenant and move towards the final of the Bible covenants, that being the new covenant. But as we do so, we look over our shoulder, and surely we behold the goodness of God consistently displayed in our study thus far. Cast your mind back to where we began and consider the promises made to Noah, promises that you and I still enjoy the full benefit of today. Promises such as the, the, the promise not to repeat the worldwide flood, the promise of the human race to be preserved, the promise of the climate to be preserved, the promise of the planet to be preserved. Surely tonight, as we remind ourselves of that and think of all that's ongoing in the country of Egypt, we do well to hope that perhaps they find a little time in their schedule to remind themselves of that truth. For a great meeting of the minds will in no way impact upon the future of our planet, because that is all in God's control. And that was all ordained way back at the beginning of our Bibles there in the book of Genesis. But continue on in our studies then, and we see His goodness once more displayed in the commitments that were made to Abraham. A great nation would come from him. The whole world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And Israel was promised a land, a specific geographical location on this earth. We then came to the Mosaic Covenant. 
And there we saw his goodness displayed in the legal code that was given to guide the leaders of the people, given to inform the worship of the people, and given to regulate the behavior of the people. We then came to consider the land covenant. And there we saw an amplification of the promises made to Abraham. We saw how God clearly outlined to his people the entire provision that he had made for them. And then we arrived at the Davidic covenant. And remember that last week we saw a covenant that was made with a man, with a family, a covenant in which a dynasty was promised to be established, a covenant in which Messiah himself was promised as being the one who would come to assume the throne, to rule over the kingdom. And surely then we marvel at all that God has promised to do. Surveying these Bible covenants, we see overwhelming evidence of God's goodness, overwhelming evidence that God desires the very best for His people, overwhelming evidence that despite what you and I may be led to believe by those within our world in this generation, that He is interested in every area of our lives and that He has a plan for every area of our lives a plan that is to prosper His people, a plan in which the preservation of the glory and honor of His name is always paramount. As we survey all of that and remark upon it, we now come to apply our understanding in the immediate context of the Israelites during the reign of King Solomon. David has now gone Uh, to be with his fathers, as the Scriptures put it. He has passed away. And Solomon, just as God promised, had ascended to the throne, all without a hitch. We saw a king who came to sit upon a throne over which he ruled a nation. A nation who were the recipients of the commitments from God that other nations of the world in those days knew nothing of. They are the recipients of the bestowal of divine favor like no other people grip on earth. They are the equivalent of what you and I would describe today as the privileged few. Those who have it all, those who want for nothing, and those whose future is all mapped out for them. Surely in our mind as we survey Israel in this moment, we think what could go wrong? Why would Israel turn their back on all that God has promised to them? How could anything other than a prosperous future and a story of unparalleled blessing and joy be experienced? But remember Ezekiel in the chapter 16. An account that we considered just a few weeks ago. Remember how God told the tale of the nation how that they were unloved, unwanted. No one cared for them. No one uh, was there to show them pity. But he cared. He showed them pity. He wanted them. He loved them. And so he betrothed himself to them. They became his wife. He showered them with bountiful possessions. He demonstrated love and affection above and beyond doubt. 
He saw them blossom into a beautiful nation, a prosperous nation, a nation of renown. But, but, their love for him waxed cold. Their love for him then disappeared. Their love and affection was given to another, indeed many others. And they used all that had been bestowed upon them in the wanton pursuit of that which would satisfy. And Israel then became renowned for all the wrong reasons. They became spiritually and morally bankrupt. They became but a whole shell of who they once were, marked no longer by beauty, but marked by misery and shame. We ask ourselves, how? The people who were the recipients of so many promises, so many prophecies, indeed, so many covenants as we come to study them together, people who knew favor from God like none other, a nation who had a story like none other, a nation with a God unlike any made by hand, are found in the world around us. We ask ourselves, how? And the answer is, because of a fool. A fool who, you will pardon a toilet analogy being used, but a fool who received all of the diamonds of God's goodness and simply flushed them away. And that fool is none other than King Solomon. And so this evening we consider the fall of a fool. David's lament in the aftermath of Abner's death was, died Abner as a fool dieth. And surely if David had lived to see the end of Solomon, his son's reign, it would be accurate to say that his lament would have been, died Solomon as a fool dieth. Now, many will ask the question, Solomon, really? Was he a fool? The wisest man in history, a fool? Come back to chapter 10 and consider what's written of him in verse 24, you might argue. It tells us in chapter 10, The king had at sea a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Haram. Once in three years came the navy of Tarshish bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Come back to chapter 5, you might argue, and say, have you not read the record there of the testimony of the king of Hiram? In verse 7, where he says of Solomon, as he comments upon all that has transpired since he uh, took over, as it were, the throne of the nation of Israel. In the verse 7, he says, when he heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, blessed be the Lord this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over this great people. Come back to chapter 4 and read the report in verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom, understanding exceeding much, and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Israelite, and Heman, and Chalco, and Darda the sons of Mahol, 
and his fame was in all nations round about. And he spake three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. And he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts, and of fowl, and of creeping things, and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. And the question then is asked, how can this man who is described as being a man of great wisdom, who history records as being the wisest who have ever lived. How can then he be described tonight in this meeting as we look back upon all that Scripture records, how then can he um, be described as a fool? None of his wisdom is disputed. None of the facts that are recorded in these passages are being called into question. But none of this changes the assessment that in the end Solomon died as a fool. Starting well is important. Doing well, going well is important. But finishing well is crucial. Solomon was blessed of God. His start was a good start. Read in chapter 2 and the verse 12, how that the Lord blesses him right at the beginning of his reign. Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. Consider verse 3 of chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Solomon's start was a good start. Solomon's going as the reign progressed, as the years passed, was a good uh, was a good going. He knew the blessing of the Lord. He knew enlargement. He knew indeed the blessing of God in every matter that he put his hand to. Read in verses one to five of chapter nine. It came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he was pleased to do that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had unto him at Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. And so we see here, as he got going, and as he lived his life, and as he uh, oversaw the reign of the people, and as he oversaw the construction of the temple, this place which was to be the dwelling place of the presence of God amongst his people, we say his going was a good going. But his end was bad. His end was very bad. We have read it there in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 11. How that when he was old, his heart was turned away after other gods. 
Solomon went after the abominations of the Ammonites, the goddesses of the Sidonians. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. And look at verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. A man whose ascension to the throne was ordained by God. A man who was a part of the family who had received great promises from God. A man who sat on the throne of a nation who had received great promises from God. But in the end, this man fell. He ended his life in a place he never desired to be. He ended his life with the testimony of his spiritual condition being far from what he would have desired it to be. The reasons for this are clearly given to us there in the chapter 11. The verse 1 records Solomon loved many strange women. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. His downfall was because of a passion, a lust that consumed him, a fire that raged within his breast that he had never learned to properly and rightly deal with, nor indeed control. Do you know that his downfall really began in the chapter 3? Long before chapter 11 was recorded, the early steps of his downfall were known. Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house, the house of the Lord, and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Here is where we trace the beginning of the fall of Solomon. Here we read of what was perhaps in Solomon's mind a wise political move, but in reality was but the beginning of a slippery slope. Here the seeds were sown of what would be in chapter 11 an abundant harvest where the number of women in Solomon's life was grossly out of control. Consider the number that's recorded there in the chapter 11. The Bible tells us it's 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. He had more wives than days of the year. And spending even just one day with each of these women would mean that date night would only come once every two years. Now, for some with us tonight in our crazy 
busy world, or maybe because of the season of life you find yourself at, that might be a reality right now. Whatever the case may be, think how many birthdays he had to remember. Think how many anniversaries he had to remember. Think how many mothers-in-law came to visit. It's hard to identify any wisdom (laughs) in all of this. What was the end result? A heart that was turned away from the true God of Israel, the God of his father David, the God who was and remains to this very day to be, the covenant-keeping God, the God who makes covenant, the God who keeps covenant. And if we read together in chapter 9, we see that the Lord had warned Solomon not to do this. In verses 3 and 4, the Lord has said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. Mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will. God had warned him. If you come back to chapter 3 and read in verses 6 and 7, you'll see there that at the very beginning of his reign that Solomon had confessed a real need of the Lord. He confessed that he depended upon the Lord. He said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee, and has kept, and thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. Here, right at the beginning of his reign, he remarks upon and indeed testifies of his need, his dependency upon God. As the years passed, God came to him and reminded him of his obligations, warned him not to depart from his word. God promised him blessing if he would obey, if he would do that which pleased the Lord. But as, if, as we've read together there at the opening of, of chapter 11, we see that pride had brought destruction. He no longer relied upon God. He no longer acknowledged his dependence upon God. We see that sin had brought death, spiritual death. No longer was he walking according to God's will. No longer was he doing that which was in keeping with God's law. No longer was he seeking after God. Remember, this was a man blessed with a kingdom. A man promised a great future. A man who received real wisdom from God, but a man who was in the end a spiritual fool and died as a fool died. The gods whom he sought after are recorded in chapter 11 for us. Ashtaroth being the first. She was the goddess of the moon. And the worship of Ashtaroth was a sensual worship. 
It was a sexual worship, for she was considered to be the goddess of love and of war. Another god that is mentioned is the god Melchum, or indeed Molech, considered to be one and the same. And he was the ruler of the despicable sacrifice. Worship of Milcom or Molech involved child sacrifice, the passing of children through the fire. And remember, this was something that was expressly forbidden by God way back in Leviticus in the chapter 20. For there is a law is given unto Moses that tells us, Again, thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Whosoever he be, if the children of Israel are of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, that giveth any of his seed unto Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. And I will set my face against that man, and will cut him off from among his people, because he hath given of his seed unto Molech, to defile my sanctuary, and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do any ways hide their eyes from the man, when he giveth of his seed unto Molech, and kill him not, then I will set my face against that man, and against his family, and cut him off, and all that go whoring after him, to commit whoredom with Molech from among their people. And there, centuries before Solomon came to the throne, God expressly said the worship of Molech was not to be engaged in. Grave were the the responses to be known whenever one would engage in such worship. Sad was the outcome. Tragic indeed was the sentence passed upon this man and indeed it passed upon all who facilitated or as it were turned a blind eye to all that this man was doing. But yet here was Solomon, the wisest individual ever to live, doing something so very, very clearly forbidden in the law of God. The Ammonites believed that if their firstborn was sacrificed in this way, that Molech then would ensure financial prosperity for their family and for all future children. And as crazy as all of that may sound to us, this form of worship and indeed sacrifice prevailed and continues to prevail. The Aztecs, the Incas, the the Druids, the Romans in Carthage all practiced it. And today, such practice is still found amongst tribes in Africa, promoted by many witch doctors facilitated by many witch doctors. And believe it or not, Uganda is the place in which much of this is to be found today. In the last 10 years, official numbers have fluctuated from 730 uh, child sacrifices in one year to 110 in one year. Many charities who work within Uganda believe all of those figures to be much, much higher. Indeed, you go to Uganda and you survey their laws. Just last year, the 14th of July, 2021, the Prevention and Prohibition of Human Sacrifice Act 
was signed into law by the president of Uganda. Almost unbelievable in our 21st century world. But this is but a practice that originates way back in the godless lands and the idolatrous lands of Canaan in the days of Abraham and is found here in the life of Solomon. Something he practiced. Something he was involved in. The final god that we find in chapter 11 is the god Shemosh. He was the god of the Moabites, described as being the fish god. In the worship of Shemosh simply involved a hybrid of the previous two, human sacrifice and lust-filled orgies were the order of the day. Now, all of this is enough to make you blush, but all of this is a testimony of the days which marked the end of the man who was privileged to build the temple the dwelling place of the presence of the true God among his chosen people. It was a man who was responsible for the prayer of dedication at the opening of the temple, a prayer that's considered by many to be an example of a truly fine prayer, the epitome of humble reverential worship. This was a man who had such a high IQ that undoubtedly he knew and could quote the law of God and the books of Scripture available to him. And yet here at the end of his life, instead of walking with God, instead of seeking after God, he was the epitome of a fool, a spiritually bankrupt fool. Perhaps this is all why he wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book believed to have been written at the end of his days and indeed perhaps when his heart was cold and wayward from God. He surveys his life. He reflects upon the excesses of life that he has enjoyed and he says, vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. All is vanity. Succumbing to his consuming passion, a victim of the fire in his own breast, Solomon said, it's all meaningless. This was a reflection of a man who had lost out on finishing well. And the genesis of all of this was found in a decision made way back in chapter 3 to marry a woman from Egypt. No doubt in that hour we've already commented it was a politically astute move to make. No doubt it was a socially prudent move. No doubt it was a sensually stimulating move. No doubt it was a move that he could rationalize and excuse away. But ultimately it was a spiritually disastrous move. The Word of God reminds us in Galatians 6 and verse 8, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And don't be fooled, my friend, for what a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Don't be fooled here, believer, tonight, for sin will take you farther than you want to go, and it will cost you far more than you want to pay. 
God had warned his people all about the potential for this. Way back in the days of Moses. And for that, we turn to Deuteronomy in the chapter 17. And keep your finger in Deuteronomy 17 and in 1 Kings 11. Because we have much to remark upon in both of these passages as we finish out our time together this evening. But this is a rehearsal of what God had spoken in generations previous. This is where a prophetical statement of God as to what would transpire during the reign of Solomon. For in Deuteronomy 17, in the verse 14, it tells us, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren, and shalt thou set king over thee that thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall, know, you shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Here the Lord speaks to Moses and foretells of the days in which they would be ruled by a king. And within the legal code that he provides to Moses, he set clear boundaries as to the behavior of those kings. Notice in these verses what was prohibited. Multiplication of horses. Multiplication of wives. Multiplication of silver and gold. Now, keeping your finger there in Deuteronomy in the chapter 17, come back to the record of Solomon's kingdom. Come back to what the Bible records as being found in the days of his reign. And remember that everything you've read off in Deuteronomy in the chapter 17, it's accurate to believe that Solomon knew all this. He could rehearse and repeat it all. But notice what the Bible records as being evident in the kingdom over which he ruled. In 1 Kings in the chapter 4 and the verse 26, the Bible tells us Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. That's multiplication of horses. 40,000 stalls of horses. Come to chapter 10. And read in the verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred three score and six talents of gold. The verse 23. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches. Verse 27, the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the veil for abundance. Note what the Bible says there about silver, that which he was prohibited from multiplying. The king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones for abundance. 
So common was silver in the city at that time that it was found just as frequently as was a stone in the street. Such was the multiplication that was evident. And then we've already read chapter 11 in the verse 3. 700 wives. Multiplication of horses, multiplications of wealth, multiplications of wives. And remember where it all began. Chapter 3 in the verse 1 in Egypt. His first alliance was with Egypt. And remember the words of verse 16 in Deuteronomy 17, to not return to Egypt. Egypt in Scripture reminds us of the world, a place of plenty, wealth, fame, provision, but in the end only brings misery, captivity, and emptiness. Egypt was from where God's people had been redeemed. They'd been delivered. They'd been brought out. And now coming into their own land, his desire was that they might live holy lives unto him. And so he warns them, don't go back to Egypt. And where did Solomon go? Egypt. Believer, tonight, this is a timeless reminder to us all. How will you finish? It's a blessing to be among a company of God's people who have all started right. It's a blessing to be part of a church family in which many are going right. But the question remains, how will you finish? Life, the Christian life, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. I tell you, there is that which beats in all of our breasts, which has the potential to destroy us, which has the potential to eradicate the memory of all the good we have ever done, are ever been involved in. What's the fire within you tonight that could engulf you? What is that which has the destructive energy capable of ruining all the days, the months, and the years of faithful living? Is it lust? Fleshly desires that just consume your thoughts. We read of Solomon, one who had many women. No doubt the most beautiful women alive at that time. But it still wasn't enough. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of a man are never satisfied. Proverbs 27 and the verse 20. Is it riches? 
The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6 in the verse 10. Is it anger? A temper which is uncontrollable and so very destructive? Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Ecclesiastes 7 and the verse 9. Or is it gossip? The most destructive of all activities that a man or a woman can engage in. Gossip where one shares information, stories, tales, all with the purpose of making someone else look bad and themselves look good. Gossip, which is the graveyard of reputations and relationships. Gossip, which is the most destructive force within a church. Bar none. And especially when the subject of that gossip is the pastor or the elders. Hear what is said in Proverbs and the chapter 26, in the verses 22 through 28, the words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Burning lips and a wicked heart are like a potsherd covered with silver dross. He that hateth dissembleth with his lips and layeth up deceit within him. When he speaketh fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Whose hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein. And he that rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. What is it that has the potential to consume you? When allowed to run free and unchecked in your life, what is it that will destroy you? Young men amongst us tonight, young ladies amongst us tonight, identify it now. Deal with it now. Because if it's left unchecked, undealt with, it will grow from its current seed form to be the nemesis of your life and death and destruction await. The sad reality for Solomon was this. It didn't have to be this way. In Deuteronomy, in the chapter 17, the Lord goes on to say to Moses, 
In the verse 18 of the chapter, And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law and a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do it, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Here was the open secret. Here was the secret that God gave to the nation, that God indeed even gave to Solomon to be his guide. If he, when he came to sit upon the throne, would acquire a copy of God's Word, and if he were to keep it with him, And if he were to allow its truth to guide his decisions, allow the revelation of the holy character of Almighty God to fill him with reverential fear and awe, then God promised that his reign would be prosperous and his life would be blessed. Fast forward to the days of Solomon. And indeed, consider for just a moment the words that God spoke directly to him. And these are words in addition to what he had already said in Deuteronomy 17, in addition to that which was preserved for him in a copy of the law available to him. God said in chapter 3 and verse 14 to Solomon, "'If thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father did walk, then I will lengthen thy days.'" Then in chapter 9, in the verse 4, he said unto Solomon, Again a promise that thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments. Then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. God said directly to Solomon, let my word be your guide. Let my law and my statutes be that which restrains you, keeps in check your impulses, tempers your urges and your passions. Let the honor of my name and the fulfilling of my will be that which provides the purpose for your life and the pursuit of your reign. Let me be all you want, Solomon, for I will prove to you that I am all you need. Friend, tonight God's message to you and I hasn't changed. He desires to be all that you want. In a world which promises you anything, indeed everything, God desires your love, your affection, your devotion. He desires that His Word would be your guide. He desires that His Word would be that which guards you. His Word would be that source of encouragement and comfort that is so often required. And so tonight, just as as, as, is of vital importance that we are reminded of the truth of finishing well, so too it is imperative 
that we reconsider the value of the book that we hold in our hands. I have a precious book. It's the Word of God. It's the only book that God has given. As I read, God speaks to me. I see Christ on Calvary. Wonderful Word of God. I have a wonderful treasure. The truth of God without measure. We will travel together. My Bible and I. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have esteemed the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Peter reminds us that we have been given exceeding great and precious promises. Promises contained in the Word of God that we can know the full value of as we learn more about God and as we grow to be more like Christ. He reminds us that to our faith we must add virtue, that morally good quality able to discern between right and wrong. To virtue, knowledge, knowledge of Him, His Word, His will, and His way. To knowledge, temperance, self-control, able through the help of God and indeed according to God's Word to temper our passions and our urges to temperance, patience, joyful endurance in this world here below, to patience, godliness, that which is a description of a holy character, a holy attitude, a holy thought, to godliness, brotherly kindness, dying to ourselves and doing what we do for the good of other fellow believers. And to brotherly kindness, charity, love, unconditional love for all around us, including those who are outside of Christ. And we do all of this remembering we have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto we do well to take heed, knowing that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Rather, it is but the product of the record given as holy men of God spake are recorded as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's what we have in our hands. And so we can depend upon God's Word. We can build our lives upon God's Word. We can search its content for fresh manna to our souls each and every day. We can allow His Word to comfort and strengthen us in times of trouble. We can allow its wisdom to influence our thoughts and decisions in moments of uncertainty. We can allow it to shape and to mold us into the believers God would have us to be all knowing that it is the Word of God, our God, our covenant-keeping God, the one who is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. May God bless His Word to our hearts tonight.